Welcome back. It's started for the rest of us. This is episode 592, where we're going to dive into nine tactics for amazing customer support. If you recall, this is an experimental format where Cody Duvall, the founder slash acquirer of Keeping, which is a help desk tool, he came on the show last week and we dug into his story of coming to MicroConf in 2019 and later acquiring Keeping through FE International. And he's been running that ever since. And so I'm bringing him on the show today purely for the tactics, the tips, the tricks, the do's and don'ts of amazing customer support. So without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Cody Duvall. Cody, I think you are the first guest on Startups for the Rest of Us to have ever made his first and second appearance seven days apart. All right, excited. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> this is great. Well, you know, as I, I, as people just heard in the intro, this is an experimental format. And I, I realized that a lot of the founders that I interview have this subject matter expertise that you gain through osmosis of, of running or building an app in a space. And I remember when I was running Hittail, which was an SEO keyword tool, early on, I acquired it, revamped it, started marketing it. People started asking me, for, well, how do I do SEO? And what should I do with this? And I was just like, I, it's a tool, go use it. Like, I, I don't know, whatever. I mean, I, I know how to do SEO, but I'm not your coach. And I started realizing, oh, so much of the value is the knowledge that's in our heads, you know, of whether it's SEO, whether it is running an ESP and knowing best practices for email, whether it's running a support tool like Keeping and having a lot more knowledge and a lot more exposure to a lot of, I'd say, probably successful customer support experiences. And you've probably seen some that, you know, aren't great. So that's why we're here. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an operator of a tool that, that empowers teams to provide customer support to their customers. But um, I by no means am a professional. And so I'd love to, as we have this conversation, if folks disagree, you know, I'm at C-O-D-E-E on Twitter to shout back because all of the things we're going to talk about here are things that I've just absorbed from talking to my own customers, having conversations with professionals. And so um, I think this will be fun. And I want to kick it off before we dive into these. So it's called Nine Tips for Customer Support or something like that. That'll be the title of the episode. Now, maybe we wind up with eight or 10, you know, we kind of wander. But interesting thing we were just talking about is the term customer success versus customer support. And I want to walk back and talk about my understanding of these definitions. And customer success was not even a term seven years ago. The first, I think the first time I ever heard it was probably 2013, 14. And customer support's been around forever, right? Because we know that, you know, you would call United, you'd call Pan American Airways, and, you know, you get a customer support. And startups have traditionally done it via email, sometimes chat widget. But customer success became this, this way of a lot around onboarding and a lot around helping high value clients get value out of a product and retain those folks, right, to cut churn. And that became this new role with these subscription businesses. You didn't really need customer success if you made a one-time sale when, oh, you know, they had implementation engineers and all that, but there was a relationship manager and AE or whatever. But really, SaaS, I think, brought about this need for customer success because we know that like churn is the, is the death knell. It's the kryptonite of SaaS and customer success. I think their overarching, you know, umbrella is to help people get onboarded, not churn and, and stick around. But you and I were talking offline just before this, that this definition may be changing or adjusting. You want to talk through how you see success versus support? Yeah. And I think, I do think that this is a term or a, or a, or a job title that is kind of, like you said, has been birthed in the past couple of years. And I, I, 
the way I see it, at least with my own customers, is that customer success is envelops the full life cycle from when someone comes on board as a customer to when they might churn on the other end. And we we might talk about customer support is once they're already a happy customer and they're and they're needing advice or and or a problem solved. But I think in the industry, customer success now covers the whole life cycle. And then even up on, up another level, you have the customer experience or CX. There are conferences where these folks go. And I think if you're working in the industry, you probably call yourself a customer success professional, but you may be doing customer support as well, right? So we're going to talk, I think, about customer support stuff here, but this maybe is under the umbrella of customer success. Yeah, and that's a difference. Like when I left Drip, they were about, I don't know, 110, 120 employees, and there was like a six-person customer success team, and they very much were high-value clients, get them onboarded, keep them around, thinking about making onboarding better, all the stuff we would think of under customer success. And then there was like a 12 or 14-person customer support team, and they were very separate. And someone talked about merging those two, and I was like, well, those there's an overarching theme, but like the skill sets of those two roles are actually quite different. And so if they move customer success up to this umbrella term over both of those, I think we need a new term for what those customer success people were doing at Drip. And whether it's an account manager or a relationship manager, you know, there should be something, I think, that has to replace that so it's not ambiguous. That makes sense? Yeah, I think those are AEs or account executives or, and they're sort of managing the customer at a, at a strategic level, not just dealing with tickets. Right. Not reactive, they're proactive. Right. All right, so let's, let's talk about, let's dive into this first tip. If you pay attention to only one metric, make it response time. Right. You know, if you if you adopt a tool, there's going to be a ton of there's going to be a ton of metrics that you can look at, and there's dashboards that are all dedicated to customer support. What we hear from our customers, and what I've noticed, that the thing that matters the most to their own customers is response time, in particular, first response time. And so that specifically is how long does it take to get a reply from a real human, not an auto reply. The auto reply does not count. Just to say, hey, we we acknowledge that you you, you have an issue or you have a question, and you know, that we're on it, or even you provide a solution. There are, I think, various metrics as to like, what is the what is a good response time or a good first response time? We can talk about that too. I just actually, just before we started recording, I recently emailed into a very well-known SaaS tool and I got an auto reply that said our typical response time is three days. And I just immediately was like, Oh, oh, no. Are you kidding me? That's, and, yeah. you know, I get it, but I don't, you know, a, a customer doesn't care or know that you have thousands of folks emailing in. You are a special snowflake. You are one and you want to reply. And I, I think, well, generally, you know, we can talk about what's a good response time, but I think that this is the most important metric to kind of pay attention to. Yeah. What is a good response time? I think that for, for teams that, you know, that we're talking about here, that generally around 12 hours or less is what you should aim for, which really means like a business day. So I think that there are definitely tools and sort of areas where, you know, maybe more than that would be, would be acceptable. But what I see from most of my own customers is that going anything longer than a day, customers start to feel ignored and they feel sad. So that should be a nice, a nice sort of rule of thumb to pay attention to is try to get back to everybody within one day. Second topic is this difference of interacting with a human, like, hey, this is just an email between two people. And as cold as email might be, I don't know, email always feels like I'm kind of texting with a little bit of delay and I'm having a human interaction versus some systems like Zendesk is the one that comes to mind because, you know, again, I hate to keep talking about merging with lead pages and that whole thing, but that's why I have experience with a bunch of different systems is because I've, I've been on you know both sides of this. But we were on Help Scout and I liked it because it felt like person-to-person interaction. It wasn't a bunch of cruft around the email. There wasn't this survey at the end. There wasn't all this stuff. And then we moved to Zendesk because that's what they were using. And 
I hated it as an experience. Do you have thoughts, you know, knowing the space better than most about which is preferred by customers? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, this is near and dear to my heart because at Keeping, it's one of the things that we like to say what makes Keeping different is that, you know, you really should feel like as a customer that you're dealing with a human. And I have to give Help Scout some props here because they really, you know, if you look in their marketing docs or even in their their own support docs, they don't like to use the word ticket. They call it a conversation, right? So this goes to what you're saying, which is when you start labeling, hey, here's your ticket, it becomes a sort of anonymous, you know, you're this this just sort of work product being pushed around in a system. And if you're at a high value SaaS, again, you want to be talking to a real person that knows what they're doing. And so, you know, I really encourage folks to look at look at tools that don't say, here's your ticket number, click on this link to check your status, please reply to this, go to this portal. I think that today in 2022, even though it's email, people want to know there's another human on the other end of that email and not just a robot. And how do you feel about these surveys that go out? after where it's like, you know, rate us one to five or how did, how did Josh help how you are out? We doing? Yeah. I have my own yeah. thoughts on it and I, I get it. I get that when I have a team of five or 500 customer support people, that the way I'm going to evaluate them is based on response time and customer satisfaction. And so if I'm not sending those surveys, I don't have that second piece of data. So I get it from a business perspective. From a user perspective, it pisses me off. I hate it. And I'm curious, you know, you're on both sides of it. Like, what are your thoughts? So you can start to see customer service tools that are really segmented. So Zendesk, we're going to pick on Zendesk here. You know, they are geared towards, you know, teams with hundreds, maybe thousands of folks on the other end are, who are replying to customer support requests. And there's a manager and a manager's manager, and they need data to know, oh, wait a minute, are we doing a good job? And unfortunately, you as the customer are being sort of bullied into providing that data. And I think more often than not, the data isn't very helpful if you're at a small scale like most of us are. And number two, I think customers kind of resent it. You know, I think a lot of times they're only going to click, click the frowny face and probably ignore the medium and the happy face. And so you're going to get skewed oftentimes data where folks were like, well, what does that frowny face mean? It took too long to reply. Was the person rude? It's often not very actionable. And so, I, again, I think that there's a different, if you're a if you're a 5,000 person organization, maybe you can get some value out of it. But I think for most of the folks that are listening to this podcast, not very useful. Yeah, and I feel like the only times that I respond to it are when someone either is like amazing and I want to give them a thumbs up or they're terrible and I want to give them a thumbs down. Like they were, you know, overtly rude. Other than that, I just, to me, it's more work for me. My inbox is already clogged with stuff and I don't want another email that I have to think about and sit there and may not even remember the experience. So a question I know that I get a lot when I'm mentoring and advising founders is, when do I hire my first employee? When do I hire my first developer? When do I hire my first customer support person? What are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, so this is hard because I think that depending on the type of service that you're offering really is going to gate the kind of person that you can hire. So my own rule of thumb, just very generally without going too far into that, is that if if you can't get back to your customers within a day, so this goes back to that response time we're talking about, that's a signal that, wait a minute, maybe maybe you need to hire somebody to, to sort of be that first line to respond to your customers. The big assumption here, though, is that that those, we'll call them tickets, are fixable by someone that you hire. So if you're early and you have a lot of technical bugs and everything requires a ticket in Jira or your, or your project management tool, that customer support hire is going to be not very helpful because they're just going to say, well, yep, it's broken. 
and that's it. But if you get a lot of requests that can be sort of tackled resetting passwords or billing questions that can be hired by somebody who's relatively trainable, I think a lot of founders find this as a huge weight off their shoulders, that they're not sort of staring at that, that cue and they can focus on their business. I also like to say that if you're a technical SaaS, that this is a great place to start a junior engineer, somebody who's learning if you're Rails and, you know, this is their first job. You know, opening bug tickets and tracking down bugs is a great place to start and sort of they can bridge into, you know, a more more senior role from there. So really depends on your domain and the kind of tickets that you're getting. But I think for the most part, if you're feeling overwhelmed and you're not being able to get to your customers back in the day, then think about hiring somebody. I think a lot of founders wait too long to hire a customer support rep. And Oftentimes, it's it's the same reason slash excuse where it's like, well, but I just know so much, and as the founder, I can just do better support. Or our product is too technical. I hear this all the time. Our product is too technical. It's like you don't hire someone with no technical experience then. You hire someone who can either figure it out or, as you said, it's a junior engineer. And I have known multiple founders who tell me, oh, it just isn't that much time. I'm not going to hire someone full-time. I don't know if I can hire someone part-time. It's only like 30 to 60 minutes a day. A founder told me that. And I was like, are you kidding me that you're spending <laughs> up to five hours a week on this this is the lowest value now so customer support is extremely valuable but you can find someone for not very much money to do it well you know not very much money compared to what your hours as a founder are worth and it's the thing that keeps people up at night you don't you know i think one thing as a you know a solo founder especially you know you've got all these things circling you taking up a little bit of your founder mana you know away and i think that not having to worry about that customer support queue is uh, you're just going to sleep better at night. So agreed. Yes. And the interruption, you don't take that into account. And it's the distraction and the interruption are the two biggest things, not the five minutes to respond to it. It's that it's off your plate. Next thing is chat widget. So to chat widget or not is a pretty common question I get. And I advised a company that had the chat widget for everybody, including like their free users and, you know, really inexpensive plans. They had plans running from $9 up to like thousands a month. And everybody, and they had thousands and thousands of people coming in. And they were trying to, you know, man the chat window or the chat widget. And it was a huge amount of effort. And I talked them through, hey, maybe we should not have it available for free plans, or maybe we should not have it available for $9 and it's only 49 and up percent, you know, and we just talked through maybe only during a trial, blah, blah, blah. There are just ways to kind of hide it. But I also know that chat can be great because it's real time and people can get, you know, fast responses. So what's your thought on that? Yeah, it's just not an easy Easy answer, but I will say that, you know, when Intercom came onto the scene, they really, I think, were the ones that that made the chat widget ubiquitous. And I think that as a customer, somebody who needs support, the chat widget's amazing, especially if it's manned and there's somebody there. The one thing I, you know, I will say is that once you offer a chat widget and you're responsive on a chat widget, your customers will always go to the chat widget. And so, you know, not everything needs an instant reply, but it's very, very satisfying as a customer to not have to wait. So... I like to, you know, and talking to a lot of folks um, about what you just said, at some point your business is going to be just too big to support a chat widget. And so I think if you're less than, say, 200 customers, it's just an off-the-ballpark number, consider a chat widget. I think that it's something that can give you really good feedback. It's really, really useful when customers get stuck and they're on in the onboarding process and they just need, you know, a little bit of this or a little bit of that. I think it's worth it in those cases. But after 200 customers, I think it maybe is a feature that's only offered on the higher plans. And you can actually really, premium support actually means something. A lot of folks have that on their higher plans and it doesn't mean anything. But I think chat support is something that people will pay for. 
And then, you know, the, the last thing is, you know, you got to make sure that it's that there's someone there. And I think that an empty chat widget in, is oftentimes worse than no chat widget. A lot of the chat widgets like Intercom come with bots that fake type, which is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I see a, a bot typing when we know a bot doesn't type. And those can be useful, right? I think chat widgets can get people to their answer like, hey, here's a support article that you asked for. But if folks really want to talk to a human and they can't get to a human in a chat widget, I think you're at this point, just have them email and that's what they're, then you're going to meet their expectations. So yeah, chat is a, is a tricky one. I think that just be careful because once it's there, it becomes, you know, something that's really hard to take away. So Cody, you have a note here in the outline. This is our, this is tip number five, by the way. It's about how early on pre-product market fit, the customer success sales and product are almost the same role. And I want you to dig into that in just a second, but I remember, you know, I, I talked about hiring customer support out and how I always did with all my apps, but I didn't do it at the start. When I acquired Hittail, I personally responded to every email ticket that came in for, I think it was three months. It might've been a little more. Drip was the same way. Three to six months I did it until it started. A, I started hearing the same things over and over. B, our product roadmap was set. And D, it became enough of an interruption and a distraction that it made sense. But I found those early days extremely valuable for me as a founder to be doing it. So why don't you tell us what you're thinking with this one? So early on, this really is about when you're still kind of like trying to find the right product for the right customer. You know, your support channel is really just another way to talk to your customers. And if your customer's taking the time to write you an email or get under your chat widget, they've just opened the door to being able to have a conversation about, hey, something's not quite right, this product doesn't quite meet my needs, but they clearly like you enough to take time out of their day to write you an email. And so I think, you know, as far as product development goes, it doesn't have to be like an outbound email. Hey, will you talk to me about this product that I'm offering? Someone's already raised their hand and said they're ready to have a conversation with you, even though it's in a customer support ticket. And that can be turned into sales, right? So as soon as somebody has sort of said, hey, this is great, but then you can say, oh, well, let's do this instead of that. And the next thing you know, you've turned somebody that was maybe on the fence, this is during a trial, into a customer. So I think in the beginning, it's really, really critical, even though no one probably loves doing customer support, that as a founder, that that is your main sort of channel to getting dialogue with your customers, getting feedback about the product, you're seeing how they type about it, how they talk about it, you're getting all that language. Um, and that's going to come out in all sorts of ways as you as you build your product. Tip number six is training your customer success team or yourself to ask every customer a question. What's that question? Well, I, this is just like a very quick tip, but Attribution is is just a mess right now in marketing. When you have, if you have a lot of inbound sales, um, you don't. Where do they come from? And so you have this opportunity to just say, "Hey, how did you find us?" Right? And they will almost always say Google, but they may they may also say, "Oh, I saw you on a, a buddy at a bar said, hey, you should check out this tool.'" And so it's just an opportunity to get a little bit of insight into your marketing, especially if you don't know where they came from. Obviously, if you reached out, you know, if this was an outbound lead that you pulled in, you don't need to ask them. But if you have a customer that came into you and you don't know where they came from, just ask them. Another question that I get pretty frequently is, how should I deal with abusive customers that are pretty far out of line? What are your, what's your tip for that? Yeah, I mean, this is really hard. I think there's a line between rude and abusive. I think a lot of folks, especially in an impersonal medium like like email, can come off a little rude. And I think that's okay. You know, I think we need to be able to deal with rude customers. That just comes with the territory. You know, they may not may not be nice, but, you know, they are your customer. I think when something trips into abuse, and I think it's important as your company that you have already decided what is abusive, right, with your team, if you, especially if you have employees. And you need to train your team to very, very quickly just 
push that ticket if you're dealing with a support ticket system to you, the founder, and let you deal with it so that your employee isn't in the firing line of somebody who's really stepped over the line. And I, you know, after that, it's up to you as the founder how to deal with it, right? You can fire them as a customer. I, I certainly have done that. Um, I think I've talked to other founders who have said, you know what, we just don't need or want your business. Obviously, that comes with some risk, especially in the world of social media and product review sites and all the things that come with it. But a customer support tool or a customer support platform gives you, as a founder, visibility into what's going on. And I think it's something that just happens and it just comes with the territory. I had to fire a few customers, for sure, over stuff like this. And my phrase was always, it sounds like we aren't a fit for your needs. And I would apologize. I'm sorry that we've disappointed you. It sounds like we're not a fit for your needs. We need to part ways. And sometimes the person then just went ballistic. And other times they like apologized and started begging for me to let them stay. And I was like, no, you've shown me what, you know, this wasn't one email that was rude. Like you said, this was like way over the top stuff and threats and this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, you've shown me your true colors. There's no way that unfortunately, you know, I can let you stick around. So. Yeah. And I think that it's worth, again, this is after you reach a certain point, it's worth spending some time. And we actually have a blog post on our site about typing up a policy about here's what we consider abusive, right? And, and, and you can just outline things ahead of time that you can share with your team, anyone that's on the front line that they know oh, they tripped over, right? into a new character and then it goes up to you as the founder or if you're big enough into the, to their boss and then you can handle it so someone's not stuck there in that, that really bad space. Got it. And we'll link that blog post up in the show notes. It's on the keeping.com blog. That's right. Yep. All right. So we have two more here. This one seems obvious to me, but maybe it won't be to some people. And it's, it's about deciding when to pay for a customer support tool because I know some people in the early days try to do it directly in Gmail with labels. And I think that not having tooling around that, whether you do go for a a full-blown help scout or whatever, or using something like keeping that kind of makes that possible within your Gmail. But what's your, what's your thought process around that? Yeah, I think some folks don't know, okay, what do I get with a customer service tool, right? Like, what, is it, what does it bring? And I actually think that if you're really small, if you're still in the sort of product development stage, these tools are expensive. So it's okay to wait, right? You can get really far with just a, an email support at mycompany.com. And especially if you're a solo founder, you know, you're not assigning tickets to anybody, you're just dealing with them. You know, on the high end, some of these full service customer support platforms are 30 or 40 bucks a month per user. So that's not a lot if you're a big, well-funded SaaS, but if you're bootstrapping, um, that's a pretty big expense. So the things that I think the killer features that may make you want to pay for a tool are so to resp- you know, some call these canned answers, shared templates, response templates. So you're going to find that you get the same questions over and over again. Not having to type the same email over and over again is a huge time saver if you can take the time. So basically cut and paste that question and answer into a system that lets you kind of one click insert. Um, and you know, customize it, of course, to make it feel like it's um, being typed. But that's just a huge time saver. All these tools give you basic analytics like we talked about with response time. Uh, the more expensive tools go really crazy here. I don't think you need, you know, every metric under the sun, but being able to calculate something like response time with a, a little dashboard, I think is really important after a certain size. I think most of these tools allowing you to communicate on the side about a support ticket, like call it a note, instead of forwarding an email around is a huge thing you don't know you need until you need it. So a customer emails in and says, I have this question. So having able to have a chat about that ticket inside of your tool is really great. And then one thing that is different for each domain is, you know, we're kind of live in this omni-channel world and some folks get customer service requests only through email, then you should choose a tool that's sort of optimized for that. If you're in the more 
prosumer or consumer side of the equation, you're gonna get a lot of your customer support requests on Twitter and Facebook. And so you need a tool that can plug into those platforms. In fact, I think for a lot of consumers today, that's their primary channel. They realize that the visibility of complaining on Twitter or Facebook gets a faster response. So, you know, you gotta have a tool that, that plugs in there. Aside from spammers and IP blacklists, that right there, the going to social media because my thing, my thing is so urgent and you should just pay attention to it. Was, those were the top three things that I hated about running Drip. I actually, I f despise them. Like it ground on me because then it was always like, cool, we'll email support. Oh, I already have. And it's like, oh yeah, I see. You're like third in the queue. We'll get back to you. Our response times were very fast. It was especially in the days when I owned it. You know, it was a few hours tops for an initial response. And it was like, what is good? But, but the entire, it was, it just always felt so entitled. It was never from the awesome customers who like were singing our praises and who legitimately had an urgent issue. It was always the demandy customers paying us the least and who complained the most. It just inevitably was that, you know? Yep. Yep. All right. Last one, our ninth tip. This is around tooling and software. And you have some specific thoughts for folks about kind of deciding, you know, maybe which type of tool to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think so. What toy to pick, right? This is a hugely crowded space. And if you were to go into Google right now and search for a help desk or customer service tool, you would get page upon page upon page of options. Obviously, I'm going to plug keeping if you're primarily dealing with customer support through email and you you know, need a tool that does everything that we just talked about, but um, perhaps you don't have a, 20, a 10 or 15 person customer service team, keeping may be a great fit for you. And I think that my, you know, my own advice is that, you know, buy the tool that's the right stage for your company. And so Help Scout is a great tool, but maybe not if you have 10 customers, right? I think that the, play, this, the segments are now big enough that really these tools are sort of oriented towards specific use cases. So there's a tool called Gorgeous, which is all about e-commerce. So yeah, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time in investigating which tool is really kind of oriented towards your industry. And then one thing to know is that, you know, my churn is very low, and I'd like to think that's because we have a great product, but it's also because there's a real sort of investment that you make with these tools, like pouring in your knowledge base, all of your customer support data gets in there. And so once you choose a tool, you're going to be on it probably for a while. So just take some time to choose the tool that's right for you. Don't just grab the first one. And I think that, you know, know that most of these bigger tools, customer support tools are built for customer support teams. And so if that's where you're going, then choose those tools. If you're a founder with a couple of folks, just be aware that you're not falling into, you know, a really complicated and expensive tool that does way more than you need. I think those are just some, some things to think about before you before you put your money up on the table. In terms of the knowledge base thing, you know, I was always resistant to putting my knowledge base into a support tool because then it tied me into it. And so we either looked at third-party knowledge base tools or at one point we used WordPress with a theme. And, you know, there are just other options. But it does seem like that's the way people are going now. Is that accurate? Where the KB is combined with the tool? Yeah, the public knowledge base, I think, is actually, this is a great, this is a business idea for anyone out there. I think that it's a really underserved market. I think if you want to build a knowledge base right now, they all of these tools come with a not very good knowledge base, I have to say. It's it's good enough. It's nice. It's integrated with your with your tools, so you can easily link to it from a, from a support ticket. But from a customer side, they all just don't feel very good. This is true with intercoms. It's true with Help Scouts. It's true with Zendesk. You know, I think they all just feel like they're not very well. There's not a lot of, a lot of folks paying attention to those products inside those companies. They feel like kind of an add-on. And so I really encourage folks to unbundle if possible. And I just don't think there are a lot of great knowledge bases kind of specifically oriented towards SaaS tools right now. And a lot of folks just do a, like you said, something in WordPress, a Gatsby, static site, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of great options for knowledge bases right now. 
Yeah, and I think the bummer is given the fact that there are mediocre free versions, free in essence, attached to these customer support tools, it would make me resistant personally to going into the knowledge base space because I know that a bunch of the, the sales objections are going to be, well, I already have a half-assed one in Zendesk, so why would I pay You know what I want to charge for it? So hopefully someone out there is gaining traction. And frankly, if you are gaining traction, I'd love to have you on the show and talk through similarly, do the interview <laughs> about, you know, about your, uh, your product and then do an episode like this where it's like things to do in your knowledge base, you know, nine tips for founders. So Cody, thanks so much for coming back on the show. You are C-O-D-E-E on Twitter and of course, keeping.com. Thank you, Rob. Great talking. Let me know what you think of this new experimental format where I have a founder come on, tell their story, and then the next week come back with tactics or strategies or thoughts on how to do things better, something that they're a subject matter expert on. You can hit me up, questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. You can click the ask a question link at the top of Startups for the Rest of Us, or you can head to Twitter. I'm at Rob Walling, and we're at Startups Pod. Let me know if you liked it, didn't like it, want more, or what have you. Thanks so much for listening this week and every week. I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm.